0: I was thinking this past week about, like, my teachers in high school, some of the best uh, teachers I had. And, and uh, several of my favorite teachers were all, like, English teachers. Um, that's right. i got an English teacher in the house. Um, they really helped me discover um, a love for literature and for language that, that remains with me today. Uh, and there was one book, some of you may have read it, maybe you hated it, There's one book, though, that was pretty influential on me. It was called Word Power Made Easy. And I remember at the time getting into it and being like, okay, this looks really tedious. But basically what it did is it really helped me understand kind of how the English language works and Greek roots and Latin roots and things like that. And it really kind of opened up uh, the English language to me. And I learned lots of new words and discovered I'd been misusing many words And I started thinking about just the various ways that we use words in our life. Of course, we all use words we know what they mean. Um, We also use words that we don't know what they mean. Um, In 2019, Dictionary.com picked the word of the year this past year was existential. Because it's everywhere in the news. It's an existential threat, existential crisis. And what's funny about this is... The choice of this word shows that it was used more than ever, and also nobody knows what it means, because everybody was constantly looking it up. We also use words that aren't even words. Uh, you know, irregardless, supposedly, espresso, nother, as in whole nother. Um, and then my favorite category, though, of words is words we confidently use, thinking they're correct, But they're not. Uh, Like, it makes me think of Michael Scott. You know, frankly, uh, the timing was nothing short of predominant. Or, uh, uh, I'm not to be truffled with. Or, I'm not superstitious, I'm just a little stitious. Um, I also was thinking about the time I was eight years old, and I was playing with action figures and reenacting a scene from Back to the Future, that had a curse word in it, but I didn't know it was a curse word, so I just very confidently reenacted the dialogue of the scene to my mom's horror as she <laughs> heard me going through this scene. So, so we, we use words in different ways, and, and I think that's true in our life of faith as well. There are words we use that are biblical words, theological words, that we might have a sense of what they mean, but not exactly... Um, we might be misusing them and not realizing it or misunderstanding them. We occasionally explore these kinds of words here, words like grace and righteousness and holiness and things like that. Uh, but another word like that that is the focus of this series over the next several weeks is the word kingdom. Um, it's it's another one of those words we see all over the New Testament. It's all over our worship songs. Uh, we encounter it in scripture over and over, but what does this word mean? The kingdom of God. What does it mean to think of Jesus as king? What is our place in the kingdom? These are some of the questions we're going to explore over the next several weeks. I think God is really going to speak to our hearts uh, as individuals and as a church as this word kingdom begins to take on more meaning for us. You know, when Jesus began his public ministry, He spoke a lot about the kingdom of God. This was a topic that was common to his teaching. If you were alive in the first century and this guy Jesus showed up in your town and he started talking, he would have used the word kingdom a lot. Check this out, Mark 1, 14 and 15. This is when Jesus first begins his ministry. It says this, After John was put in prison, that's John the Baptist, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. And here's his quote, the time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So this shows us that the earliest teachings of Jesus, the subject matter was the kingdom. He wasn't talking as much about, you know, put your personal faith in me. He wasn't talking, he did talk about that in other places. He wasn't talking about, you know, I'm going to want to be your life coach or whatever. He was talking about the kingdom um, and he says it has come near, which implies it's sort of already arrived or it's arriving with him. But then in another famous passage, when Jesus taught us how to pray, he implied that the kingdom is still something in the future that we should desire and ask for. Look at this in Matthew 6, 9 to 10. This is in the Lord's Prayer. This then is how you should pray, Jesus said. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So you're praying for God's kingdom to come, but he also said it's already come near. Another time when the kingdom was a focus of Jesus's dialogue was um, in his discussion with Pilate when he was on trial. Pontius Pilate, they were talking about the nature of his rule because right, Jesus was accused of trying to like usurp the Romans and here he is talking to this Roman governor and they're talking about the kingdom. And, and this is the exchange in John 18. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? asked Jesus. I love that, by the way. Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied, Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you've done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. So Jesus spoke often about his kingdom, the kingdom of God, well over a hundred times actually throughout the Gospels. We see this language of the kingdom in Jesus' teaching, and so we have to understand what this means. If we want to understand Jesus' message, this was a key aspect of his message, Um, and he often taught about this in parables he would, he would, uh, that illustrated the nature of the kingdom. He would say things like, the kingdom of heaven is like, and then he would tell a parable. Um, and, and these tell us about the nature of the kingdom, how we can see it, how we should feel about it, what we should do. So that's what we're going to do in this series over the next several weeks, is explore some of Jesus' parables about the kingdom, uh, where he talks about the nature of his kingdom. Um, but I want to give you, before we do that... Just a couple basic ideas about the kingdom that we see in the New Testament. This is just to help give us a lens as we look into these parables. The first thing is this: the kingdom refers to Christ's reign. Jesus said, "The kingdom has come near." He was essentially saying, "I've come near. I'm the king. The ruler has arrived." So, so it refers to his reign. I'm going to talk a little bit more about what I mean by that in a second. The second piece of it, and we already saw a glimpse of this in the few passages I showed you, the kingdom is both present and future tense. This is an idea throughout Scripture. It's kind of already, but not yet. Um, that's kind of how the kingdom is described. Because of the work of Christ on the cross, because of his resurrection, his exaltation, his rule has been established, but it's also being established. These two things are happening at the same time. The kingdom's growing. So here's how it looks in the present tense. In the present tense, access to the kingdom of God comes voluntarily through faith in Christ. That is how one comes into the kingdom and submits themselves to Christ's reign. Christ's reign is visible in the transformed lives of Christians in the church. The church is a community of people who have submitted themselves to Jesus's reign. So if you're a Christian, you're a citizen of the kingdom, you're an ambassador of the kingdom, you could think of real hope as an outpost of the kingdom of God. That's sort of the present tense kingdom. But in the future, there will be an undisputed, visible, worldwide kingdom of God. Jesus' rule will be a fact, observable fact, regardless of how people feel about it. People will not be able to opt out of jesus's reign that is something that has yet to be fulfilled that's the kingdom we're waiting for praying for that jesus said pray that his kingdom would come this is the future tense of the kingdom jesus is king and he will be king so that, that's just a snapshot of kind of an overarching view of of this kingdom language in scripture but so with that in mind i, I want to look at just three verses Jesus tells two parables in three verses. That's efficiency right there. Uh, So we're going to look at three verses today and begin to discover what the nature of this kingdom is. So turn with me, if you will, to Matthew 13, verse 44. Uh, If you're not familiar with the layout of Scripture, we have up here the Gospel of Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. Uh, We will have the Scripture on the screen as always, but we encourage people here to take notes, highlight, you know, mark up their Bibles dive in with us and so we have note cards in those baskets and highlighters and uh, if you don't own a bible there are bibles on your table we'd love for you to take that home that would be our gift to you so we're going to look at uh, matthew thirteen forty four at, at these two like kind of twin parables um, as we begin to understand this word kingdom and what it means for our lives so let's start in verse 44 this is jesus speaking okay he says this the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. So that, that's the parable, the first parable. So let's look at, at what we just read there. Um, highlight for me or circle the word like. That's a signal that we're getting a figure of speech here. It's a simile, right? The kingdom of God is like something. So he's he's painting a picture. We we're meant to sort of imagine this. Um, and so, what is it like? He tells us. Highlight this: a treasure hidden in a field. The kingdom is like a treasure hidden in a field. It's something of great worth. It's a treasure, and and it's there in the field. It's real, but it's not obvious, right? It's it's, it's hidden in the field. Uh, but the man in the parable, it says, highlight this: he found it. He found this hidden treasure. So the the image here, the idea is that this individual sort of stumbled upon it. He wasn't looking for it. It was hidden. And he just sort of found it. There it is. He wasn't looking for it. He happened upon it. But in discovering it, he's now overwhelmed with what it is, the joy of what he's discovered. So what does he do? Well, we see here, highlight this. He sold all he had and bought that field. Everything he had. What I just found is worth more than everything I have. So I'm going to let go of all that for the sake of this. He sold everything he had. So the treasure in this parable is the kingdom of God. The man stumbles upon it, and he experiences such joy, he sells everything he has to possess the kingdom. Now let's look at the next two verses. This is the second parable. It's going to even expand our understanding of this. This is still Jesus speaking, verse 45. Again... The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. So highlight this phrase. Um, The kingdom is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. So some similarities with the first parable, but key difference as well. Uh, In the first parable... The the, the kingdom is like the treasure hidden in the field, right? The kingdom is like the treasure. Notice in this parable, the kingdom is not the pearls. The kingdom is like the merchant looking for pearls. The pursuit is what's in view. The kingdom is like this person looking for it, looking for the pearls. And when he found what he was looking for, what did he do? Very similar to the first parable. Sold everything he had and bought it. He knew the value of what he'd found. So I want to kind of step back for a second from these two parables and think about what this is really telling us. Because it tells us something about us, and these parables also tell us something about the kingdom. The first parable, verse 44, is speaking to people who stumble upon the kingdom. Uh, You might put it this way, people who find Christ easily. Um, The man just found the treasure in the field. He wasn't necessarily looking for it, it was just there. He finds it and joyfully responds. So in modern terms, this might be a description of people who put their faith in Jesus. For example, when they're four years old at home and and they just they just have believed in Jesus. They continue to believe in Jesus and their life is marked by faith in Christ. They've never really sort of walked away from it. Doesn't mean they've never struggled, but they sort of found it easily early on in life. And they never really look back. It could also be people who, at whatever age, they hear the gospel once, and, and they're just moved by it, and they place their faith in Christ. They immediately sense the truth of the gospel in their soul, and they just respond. There's not a lot of resistance there. They, they found it. They just sort of stumbled on it, and there it is, and they know what they have. It, it reminds me of a time when um, a number of years ago I was at home, And we we had a like a pest control guy coming to our house, and I had to meet him. I remember it was over my lunch break, and the guy shows up, and uh, he asked me. We were talking. He asked me what I do for a living, which, by the way, always makes for very interesting conversations. And um, I I told him what I did, and uh, he he just launched into these very direct questions, like, "Okay, well, you know, why did you choose to do that?" And you know. Why do you think God is worth your devotion? And why does this bring you meaning and purpose? In your, I mean, like, incredibly substantive questions. And I just started talking to him, and about 20 minutes later, he just said, I want what you have. How do I have this? And I prayed with him in my kitchen. I remember drawing a picture of the cross and, you know, the bridge illustration, classic bridge illustration, and, you know, here's you, here's God, on the little whiteboard on our fridge. And he prayed and placed his faith in Christ in my kitchen. And, like... <laughs> I just felt like God, you really made that easy for me. <laughs> like, I mean, you just sort of here's this guy, but 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 I think that's someone. It's it it's similar to what we read here of you know just kind of someone just found the kingdom. And it's like here it is, and oh my gosh, I found it. And um, I also think of the thousands of people in India who are a part of the ministry we support there who are leaving, you know, their cultural background, their religious background, because they hear the gospel for the first time and it just resonates in their hearts. And they give their life to Jesus. And some of you might put yourself in that camp. You discovered Jesus. You heard the gospel, entered the kingdom by submitting yourself to Jesus' reign. And you did that with little difficulty. It was just good news and you just gave your heart over. You gave your life over. The door was opened for you and you walked through it. The second parable, though, tells a very different story. It's the tale of a person seeking out this treasure diligently. And then eventually finding it. I think in modern terms, this is the skeptic. This is the person who searches for truth for years, who has profound doubts about God and the nature of truth, wonders if this whole Christianity thing is true or just a scam. This is the cynic, the doubter, the wonderer, perhaps the disillusioned. Some of you might put yourselves in that camp. You came to Christ, entered the kingdom with effort. Sleepless nights, lots of reading, lots of tough conversations, big questions. You weren't sure which door was the right one. All of them seemed to be locked, but you tried them all and you found one that was open. And you walked through it. Now, some of you might still be searching for that, for that door. I think these twin parables tell us something about God. You see, he invites both types of people into his kingdom. He wants people who find him easily and respond easily to his message and the gospel. And he also wants people who resist him, who doubt him, who wonder about him, even who deny him. He loves us all and we are all invited into relationship with him, into the kingdom. Whether you discover Christ easily or accidentally or through significant effort and struggle, he still opens the door for you. But notice, even though the two parables speak to two different types of people, two different paths to the kingdom, the response was still the same. I mean, that's really where the lesson is for us. Each of these individuals sold everything they had to be able to take hold of the treasure that they found. Whether they found it easily or through great effort, once they found it, they recognized it was worth everything. And so this is a message. This is Jesus helping us understand the nature of his kingdom. His kingdom, his reign in your life is worth everything. In the words of Craig Blomberg, who's a very uh, well-regarded biblical scholar, we are called to abandon anything that would stand in the way of wholehearted allegiance to Christ and the priorities of his kingdom. That's really the message of these parables and other parables that Jesus taught is, is we're meant to embrace our relationship with him and his priorities and his agenda far above our own, you know, and you think about what are the priorities of his kingdom? I mean, loving God, serving God, genuinely loving and serving others, putting people ahead of us, these are kingdom priorities, and they 're worth everything. Jesus is saying, they are worth everything because the king is worth everything, and he's worthy of our lives and so Jesus. As he did with all of his parables, uh, he, he, taught, he, he gave us these parables not just to give us information or just paint a picture of some truth, but to elicit a response from us. He was always engaging with the people he spoke to. He was always trying to help them think about things and ask questions they might not have asked. And I think there are some questions kind of hiding in the, the background of these two parables. I think one of the questions is, are you looking for the kingdom? Are you searching for it? If you're not, you should be. It's real, and you've been invited into it, and he wants you to find it. I think that's a question. Are you looking for the kingdom? I think another question is, if you've found the kingdom, if you've come into relationship with Christ, do you treasure it like the individuals in these parables? What wouldn't you be willing to give up? What areas of life have you walled off from God and said, God, I'll give you all of this and I'll trust you in this area, but over here, this is mine. I'm going to do what I want over here. I'm going to think this way, my way, about these things. Over here, I'm happy to do it your way. This is my stuff. We all do that. Let's just be honest. Sometimes it's consciously, sometimes it's unconsciously. And these parables are painting a picture of giving up everything, of recognizing the treasure you have found and realizing everything you have pales in comparison to that. What would you be willing to give up for the sake of knowing Jesus as king and advancing his kingdom priorities? Is your relationship with God that precious? These are questions that these parables raise that Jesus wanted us to interact with. These are important questions, but I think there's something really important we have to remember when we start going down the road of thinking, OK, what would I give up for God? What, what would I be willing to let go of to take hold of Christ and his kingdom? We, we have to remember one thing or that road will take us someplace really difficult. And the one thing we have to remember is this. Jesus gave up everything for you. And he did that first. Before We could ever before we had a thought in our head, before we could ever even think about, well, what would I give up for Jesus? You know, what what, what am I holding back from God? Before we could ever think those thoughts, He gave His life. He took the initiative. He started this. He made Himself low. He gave His very life to open that door to you because you are His treasure. You are precious to Him. And so, in whatever ways we embrace the kingdom, we, we do, like in the parable, You know, we're willing to just to say everything in my life pales in comparison to this. To whatever extent we do that, it's a response to Jesus already having done that for us. We're not doing it to earn his favor, prove that we love him, get on his good side. No, no, no. He already gave everything. He has already proven how much we are loved. And when we respond in prioritizing our relationship with him, it is an answer to what he's already done. I think of the Apostle Paul, who, if you know anything about him, he came to faith with a lot of difficulty. Uh, He he would have been the second parable type of person. He was not a, oh, Jesus sounds good. No, he was hunting down and imprisoning Christians before Jesus got hold of him. And in his letter, Galatians, he has this wonderful statement um, that is one of my favorite verses in the New Testament that tells us that in response to what Jesus had done for him, he had given up everything for Christ and his kingdom, that he, he, his whole view of his life had changed. Um, and so I want to read this verse. It's um, Galatians 2.20. And I, what I love about this is he says what's true of his life, and he tells us why it's true. He says this, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. And then he gives the reason, who loved me and gave himself for me. You could read it in reverse. Because Jesus loved me and gave himself for me, I have put to death, I have crucified my entitlement to run my life the way I want to run it. And I'm embracing him and his priorities and his agenda. Because he gave his life for me. And he's entitled to do that. You are worth everything to God and the relationship he offers should be worth everything to you. That is what these parables are teaching us. A relationship with God coming into the kingdom should be worth more to you than money or prestige or the pursuit of them or success or status or comfort or stability or political perspective that means so much to you or personal life philosophies or your own agendas, any other relationship in your life. God held nothing back from you. And he calls us to place him at the center of our life. And by the way, if we do that, we will find a joy and purpose and meaning filtering out into all the other aspects of our life. He promises to do that. He doesn't promise it's an easy life, but he promises that it will be meaningful and it will be of value and it will be joyful in a way that we cannot achieve on our own. So if you embrace this mentality of prizing the kingdom, prizing the relationship with Christ above everything else. If you do that and I do that and the church does that, the kingdom, those who have submitted themselves to Jesus' reign, will grow and grow and accomplish its purposes. So, I want to encourage you to reflect on these parables this week. It's three verses. Read them every day this week. Three verses. And just prayerfully think about this consider i'm going to do this too how much do i treasure the kingdom of god how much do i prize jesus's reign in my life do i even view him as reigning over me that's another word that we don't sometimes really fully understand is the word lord we almost use it as like a title for for god like mister or something it's like lord yeah that's just what you call god lord means something It means the one who rules over you. So to know Jesus as Lord and Savior is to know him as the one who has saved you, rescued you, and is also ruling your life. That's what Lord and Savior means, is you've submitted yourself to his reign and his agenda and his priorities. So I would encourage you to pray about—what a great opportunity to do this at the beginning of the year—to pray and think about— To what extent do I view Jesus as reigning over my life? And if I do view him as reigning over my life, is that a joyful thing for me? Am I prizing it in the way that these men in the parables did? Because that's what Jesus wants for us. One final thing I want to say as you think about this, as you pray about it, and you think about Jesus' reign and finding joy in the kingdom, the answer is not... Try to just work hard at this. I'm going to just really try to have a good attitude. And, you know, I'm going to go to church all the time. And I'm going to, you know, uh, just work really hard. And, you know, I'm going to show God how much I love him. Because that takes you down this path of basically you're just trying to impress God. You're trying to show him that you're worth something when he's already told you how worthwhile you are. He gave his life. So part of this process is admitting you can't do this in your own strength. And this should guide the way you think and pray about this. This means when you pray about it, you should be saying, Lord Jesus, I want to view you as reigning over my life. I want to view myself as a citizen of your kingdom, and I want to feel joyful about that. I don't want that to feel like a burden. I want to feel the way about it that you want me to feel about it. But I understand, Spirit, that I need you to work inside me and transform me in such a way that the result is that I feel that way. Because left my own devices, I won't. I will view your reign as oppressive or restrictive or I won't even think you're in charge of me. I'll just think that you're there to kind of help me with my agenda. And so part of this is saying, I want these things to be true of me. I cannot manufacture this. So Spirit, I am trusting you to change me from the inside out. Would you make true of me what was true of the men in these parables? That is the way to pray and think about this. So why don't we now pray together in that spirit as a, as a body of believers.